You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Max Bazerman, who teaches at the Harvard Business School and is the author of this book right here, Better Not Perfect, A Realist Guide to Maximum Sustainable Goodness, which I love that term. We'll talk about that. But even though we're going to spend the time talking about that book, I want everybody to know that Max is a prolific author. Another book that you've co-authored is, is this one, The Power of Experiments, which I really like, highly recommended with another HBS professor. And then going way back, I know it's way back because I can see from the picture, is this book, Predictable Surprises, which I've had uh, reason to dip back into this year with the coronavirus pandemic. I've been asked to give a lot of talks about why this seemed to come out of the blue for a lot of people and not for other people. So, you know, again, timeless stuff. Judgment decision-making is a timeless topic. It's something that we continue to get new insights, but humans are always going to be humans. Yes, they will be. And thank you for all that reading you've done on my behalf. So thank you. I've been reading your stuff since, you know, (laughs) I want to start by asking business schools have these courses on business ethics. Sometimes they're mandatory. Sometimes they're voluntary. When I was in business school, they were, well, you did it, but you didn't get credit for it. Now we have it in the core in our MBA curriculum and students are given an introduction to utilitarianism and deontology and all this other stuff. And it seems like in some business schools, at least the business ethics class is becoming a course in applied decision-making and it's bringing in more and more stuff from judgment and decision-making. And a lot of people would argue that moral decision-making is just decision-making. Do you see this as, as a trend where more and more people who are thinking about being ethical, being moral, are digging into the science of judgment, the descriptions of how we behave and not just thinking about how we should behave? There are lots of parts of that question. So let me try to separate them out in a few different ways. So to begin with, if we look across the history of teaching ethics, the vast majority of history would put the topic squarely in the philosophy department. And philosophers have taught us a variety of normative theories of how people should behave in some kind of ideal sense. You held up the book Blind Spots before, and that's a book that I wrote with Ann Tenbrunsel on how we actually do behave. It's a descriptive book. And my current book, Better Not Perfect, is meant to be a prescriptive book on how to get people to make more ethical decisions. So I think that there's an evolution. I think that this evolution of combining normative and descriptive to come up with a sort of a prescriptive approach to a topic is certainly something that I borrowed from work that I've done in in negotiation and in decision-making, where normative and descriptive theories existed. And I think that I'm part of a wave it is focused on how do we use normative and descriptive knowledge to give good advice. And so this book falls into that category. So undoubtedly, I think of the topic of ethics as a decision-making topic, but I move the goal from rationality or how to maximize your own outcome to how to maximize the outcomes across all sentient beings. And certainly I'm influenced by Peter Singer and other important utilitarian philosophers who have the goal of creating as much good as you possibly can. So if you switch the goal from individual rationality 
to maximizing the outcomes of all sentient beings, then all of a sudden I'm going to use the same tools that I use in decision making to guide us to a more ethical decision as well. I don't think anyone would or should make the mistake that you know, rationality and ethics are in any way necessarily correlated, right? I mean, if your motivations are, are bad, you'll probably be more able to successfully achieve your bad goals if you're a rational decision maker than if you're an irrational decision maker. Sure. So I think of rationality and maximizing outcomes across all sentient beings, both as goal states. So in the decision-making literature, we don't assume that people are fully rational but we certainly give advice to make them more rational. So we, we treat that as the North Star of decision-making. And similarly, maximizing outcomes across all sentient beings is what I use as the North Star of what I'm trying to accomplish with Better Not Perfect. But the Not Perfect highlights the fact that I don't think we're going to get there. I know I'm not good enough to be perfect from an ethical perspective, but I certainly think that I can be better than I am currently, and I plan on being better. Right. What you're writing about is squarely in the tradition of the Kahneman and Tversky view of decision-making, where for simplicity's sake, we, we think about our system one and, and our system two, and system one is the more emotional, less reflective way of making decisions, and the system two is the more, more reflective or more rational approach to decision-making, more systematically goal-oriented and so forth. In business schools, we debate often the merits of attempts to de-bias people, right? It seems like when people come in as first-year MBA students, oh, you know what? All these ways you're making decisions, they're all wrong. You know, you've got to start doing them differently and you've got to learn these, this decision theory and so forth. But then there's a whole an alternative group of people that says that's fundamentally misguided. It's unlikely that you're really going to ever be able to change people's decision-making processes. And rather, you should try and design systems that essentially harness or, or harvest those irrationalities, you know, lean into them and figure out a way to kind of work around them through nudges or, or whatever. Where do you sit on that spectrum? I mean, you've been teaching for decades to business school students and others. I'm old enough to have been a Kahneman diversity fan long before Kahneman won his Nobel Prize and were thinking fast and slow. I've been teaching this material for a long time and I find their work to be fascinating and I think their work on biases and heuristics is amazingly important. And if we go sort of backwards, if I go back to the 1980s, those of us who were already dabbling in this literature, we clearly worked under the false assumption that if we could figure out what the mistakes were, we could fix human intuition. And we were just wrong. So many, many years later, we've done an amazing job of identifying not just that people make mistakes, but the systematic and predictable ways in which people make mistakes. But we've made very little headway in terms of fixing human intuition. But earlier you mentioned system one and system two. And I think that those are intervention. I think moving from system one, our intuitive processes, to system two, our more deliberative processes, is very much a way of improving individual decision-making. So Kahneman has made this Stanovich and West distinction between system one and system two quite famous. And the core idea is that we make most of our decisions intuitively without deliberating. Deliberating means thinking more systematically. It means making a decision tree. It means talking to our smart friends. It means crowdsourcing. It means using artificial intelligence. So we have lots of ways of engaging our more deliberate thought processes. And when we do, we are less biased. So 
Whether you want to call that a debiasing mechanism or not is a matter of semantics. But what we do know is we don't know how to fix intuition, and we do know how to fix decision. And one key way is to get out of system one and into system two, at least for our important decisions. And then structurally, those of us who have management responsibility, and we can put executives into that category, we can probably put teachers into that category, parents into that category. We design systems that affect not only ourselves, but the decisions of others. And following the Thaler and Sunstein work on Nudge, we can design systems that lead people to be less biased. So we both have moving people out of system one to system two at an individual level and nudging at a more systemic level as ways to improve our decision-making, even if we can't improve our underlying intuition. And it turns out that we have the same tools available for our more ethical decisions. That is, when we move people out of system one into system two, not only do we make better decisions, but we make more ethical decisions. And similarly, we could identify ways of structuring the environment so people are more likely to make more ethical decisions as well. So we can use the same structures where we have a somewhat different goal instead of the goal being rationality. Again, the goal is to maximize outcomes across all sentient beings, but we can identify similar tools from the same bucket of ideas. So you are clearly a utilitarian. I mean, you make it clear in the book that you subscribe to. I'm an aspiring utilitarian. None of us can quite get there. Right. Even the most radical utilitarians aren't utilitarians in, in the pure sense. Right. We can talk about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but utilitarianism is something that I think most people would kind of agree to as at least one of the many ethical objectives that they have. Maybe they have some others that they have to think about trade-offs with, but it would be hard to find someone who doesn't agree to, say, the idea of Pareto optimality or Pareto improving moves. That seems to be much more easy to convince people of. And yet even that very universally desirable type of ethics, you see plenty of situations where people just, they just don't do it and they don't get there and their preconceptions prevent them from doing it. You've been teaching negotiations for many years and I'd love to hear kind of what you, you've learned. One lawyer I was talking to got a JD and an MBA. He told me that he took negotiations in law school and then he took negotiations in business school and he learned that they approached them in completely different ways and that in the law school, it was all about winning. And when he got to the business school, he discovered that if you did it that way, then nobody would ever negotiate with you. So, you know, you've been teaching negotiations primarily to business students. What have you learned about what are the obstacles to people creating these win-wins? First of all, I don't resonate with the anecdote that you provided. I actually think that my colleagues at, in law schools generally teach concepts not that dissimilar from what we do in business schools. And I think most law school professors that I know who teach negotiation wouldn't identify with the notion of they teach winning. In fact, they think that they teach an awful lot of value creation in law schools as well. So one of the core concepts that we teach people is that the pie isn't fixed in any complex negotiation. In any complex negotiation, there are trade-offs that we can make. And if I can find out what you care more about and you can find out what I care more about and we can trade off, there's more value to be created. So we move to what you referred to earlier as the Pareto efficient frontier, or in simplicity, we might say a bigger pie. And in negotiations, we want to negotiate over a bigger pie rather than a smaller pie. And 
as I move from decision-making and negotiation to ethics, I want to create a bigger pie. And instead of there being party A and party B, there's a lot more people. There's all sentient beings. So that's not just the 7 billion humans, but we also have a bunch of animals. And Peter Singer, a very famous utilitarian, the most famous lives utilitarian, would argue that the interests of all should be treated equally. So that doesn't mean that an ant is as important as a human, but the pain that an ant or a dog or a pig would suffer should be treated on an equal plane as the pain of a human. So the goal simply shifts from this two-party structure to a much more complex structure of how do we create the biggest pie of positive resources that we possibly can, or in many cases, avoiding the destruction of resources or reducing pain as much as we possibly can. What exactly are the bounded rationality elements that kind of get in the way of this? So even if people are they subscribe to your beliefs. So yeah, I'm a utilitarian. I, I believe in greatest good for the greatest number. Maybe their circle isn't as wide as yours, but you know, given how they define their circle, they say, this is what I want to do. Why are people so bad at it? Is it primarily a lack of motivation or is it a lack of empathy or is it just a lack of understanding the, the mechanics of how people's utilities relate to one another? So the goal is to maximize collective benefit. And you said some people might describe it more narrowly. So I care about my family or I care about my university. And Joshua Green, another very famous utilitarian who was trained as a philosopher, but is my colleague in psychology at Harvard, he wrote this amazing book called Moral Tribes. And he would describe as soon as you just shrunk the group that you care about, you've just created one of the barriers to creating the most good that you possibly can. And the effective altruism movement argues that once you want to give your charitable dollars locally, or once you want to give it to your own group, your own religious group, you're probably limiting how effective you can be in terms of your charitable dollars, because in many cases, your charitable dollars can have a much greater impact than some organization that's more distant from you. So as soon as we have a trauma, we're putting up barriers that limit how much good we can do. As soon as we're selfish, we're putting up a barrier to doing as much good as we can do. As soon as we assume that there's a mythical fixed pie, we're limiting how much good that we can do. To the extent that we trust our intuition, which is, I think, very hazardous to the well-being of others, we're limiting how much good we can do. So simply by being more deliberative and busting out of the mythical fixed pie, we can create more good for ourselves, those around us, but also for an even broader world if we include that as part of our goal structure. So I see that there's a wide variety of barriers that people have. And we can look at it differently in terms of different domains. So with charitable giving, you know, I think that the fact is a lot of people want the glow and the recognition from their charitable giving, and that limits their effectiveness. I think a lot of us respond intuitively as requests come one at a time rather than deliberating on a comparative basis at the end of the year, where we're more likely to look at where our dollar will create the biggest bang for the buck in terms of its impact. We can also think about the use of our time. So a lot of us are asked to do a favor, and we focus on that favor. And we also claim that time is our most scarce resource. Well, if time is our most scarce resource, if you provide your time 
on a low-impact outcome, then you're not going to have your time for some other activities. So I think that we can think about how to allocate our time more effectively in ways that will increase our ability to become better, even if we can't become perfect in how we use our time. I think you and Josh Green both would say that most of the tribalism is not motivated by negative attitudes towards outgroups, although there's plenty of that. It's really more motivated by positive attitude towards in-groups or loyalty or a sense of community. I think you have to be very careful, right? I mean, you're not saying that people shouldn't care about their neighbors or shouldn't care about their, their community or shouldn't care about their family. I mean, even Peter Singer admitted that he spent an enormous amount of money to take care of his, his mother when she was old, which probably could have been put to better use. How does one think about those trade-offs between the loyalty? I mean, utilitarianism is a demanding philosophy, isn't it? Yes, it's an extremely demanding philosophy, particularly if you wanted to be a perfect utilitarian. But if you wanted to ask the question, could you do an audit of your life to identify a wide variety of ways to make decisions that would create more good in the world, I think that that's actually a very doable task, one that many of us would enjoy doing. So like Peter Singer, I'm happy to be guilty to valuing my spouse more than I value a random person across the world who I will never meet. But what I want to do is realize that when I do that, I'm not valuing the interests of all equally. So an awful lot of people believe in equality. And if you challenge them to what they mean by that, they're hard pressed to come up with a viable answer for that. So what I would like to do is to focus less on any small group that I happen to be associated with and more on broader outcomes. And another distinction is an awful lot of people want to draw the line between the human race and all other species. I'm not with that program. I think that we should put far more weight on the pain and suffering, particularly of animal farming, which is kind of a harm that our species has created that creates enormous pain and suffering to provide comparatively minimal benefit to humans because we have lots of ways to feed ourselves other than by killing an animal in order to do that. So I think that we can all think about, do we want to broaden our circle so that we can create more good, but I'm going to continue to value my spouse and continue to value my dog. So we spend a lot of money on our dog that if we put it into the cause of reducing animal suffering in factory farming, it could have a broader impact. But I view that as sort of a preference rather than an act of goodness. When I give my dog special status, which I do, I'm going to continue to do, I love my dog, but I get personal joy and attachment from that rather than viewing that as an ethical act per se. The more ethical act would be to focus on factory farms where whatever resources I spend provide more benefit. You mentioned in the book a couple folks that really took this altruism or this utilitarian view to a bit of an extreme. You mentioned one Facebook employee in San Francisco who lives on $9,000 a year, even though he makes half a million. I was reading about someone who was an alumni of my university at Penn, who after donating his first kidney, decided he wanted to donate his second kidney because he thought that he could withstand dialysis better than some others. And I think that's when his wife decided to divorce him. So, you know, you've got those people on one end, and then you've got on the other end, Voltaire's famous hypothetical of someone who would kill a thousand Chinese people for an extra piece of bread. 
what is the waiting scheme? I guess there's no right answer to that, but at the very least, you suggest that the idea of kind of scope insensitivity is something we should be made aware of. Like we certainly shouldn't treat them as being the same, even though if we're making a bigger impact, we should be able to at least acknowledge it. So let me unpack a little bit of that. So first of all, I'm also a Penn undergraduate, 1976. We should mention the person's name because he's an interesting character who you were referring to, the Facebook employee is a guy named Ian Ross, who I've never met, but I've read about him in lots of places and talked about him in Better Not Perfect. I still don't know how you can live on $9,000 a year. We spend over $50,000 a year on per homeless person in San Francisco, so I don't know how he lives on $9,000. So I think he spends very little money, obviously, on the social aspect of his life. You do get free meals at Facebook, I will say. You get really wonderful free meals. I've seen him speak on this topic. A couple of years ago, he claimed he'd be paying $400 rent, and he lived with the fact that he got mugged occasionally because the neighborhood wasn't the best imaginable at that price. And he very much views himself as a vessel to create as much good as possible. So I admire the guy. So he's contributing a half a million dollars where I think that he's reducing an enormous amount of suffering. And I think that that's just great. But I don't feature him in my book as a role model. And I don't feature him in my book because the title is better, not perfect. And I think that he takes the perfect too seriously for most of us to follow. And it's a little bit like pure utilitarian philosophy. I think that a lot of people would look at Ian Ross and say, I'll pass on him being a role model. And so what I want to do is provide a very, very different model, and that is better, not perfect. So how do you create the balance? I don't think one simple answer is going to fit that, but here's my simple prediction. So Greg, you and I have talked before, but I don't know you well. My guess is if you could audit your life and identify a variety of ways where if you sacrifice absolutely nothing, both your time and your money could simply create more good if allocated differently. That seems like a really good start. And once this idea of being better becomes part of the goal set, then you might even want to sacrifice. You might want to contribute more time to create good. You might increase your charitable contributions a bit. But more importantly, as you do it, you're likely to focus on doing it efficiently. And you're likely to move some of the other less efficient time and money in more efficient ways. And being a good chunk better might not be that hard to do. Now, I don't mean to be judgmental about you, Greg, because I don't know enough about you to do that, and I wouldn't want to anyhow, but I know that that's true for me. So my goal is to be a bunch better this year than last year, and then next year I'm going to view 2021 is not good enough and try to be better. And how much better? I don't think I'm going to give you the quantitative metric that a financial engineering person might want, but I gave you a concept in the subtitle of the book. Maybe you want to push to your maximal sustainable level of goodness, okay, so that you can push to the point where you're comfortable maintaining that level and you're leading a better life as a result. So while I'm claiming to you that I'm a better person than I was three years ago, I'm not claiming I'm suffering in order to do that. I'm leading a a life that I find to be just fine. So I'm probably not at my maximum sustainable level of goodness. So I think I'll keep on moving in that direction. And I'm not even sure that suffering is necessary to get to your maximum sustainable level of goodness because 
I might be a more functioning human being if I make sure that I sort of maintain happiness and an ability to be productive and to influence other people. So one very famous utilitarian, I'm not going to mention his name because I don't know if he prefers to present it this way, but he's a vegetarian and not a vegan. And why not a vegan? And he basically says that he can influence more people to be more utilitarian if he doesn't look like what some people find to be an extremist. And by having sort of a very high standard, where he certainly minimizes his dairy intake as well, he thinks that he can have a broader influence on overall outcomes if he includes outcomes that move beyond himself. And I think that he may very well be right. So I think Martha Nussbaum wrote a book a couple decades ago. I think she was trying to engage the idea of cost-benefit analysis and utilitarianism and economics. And she was making a plea for people to read more literature. And she said, you know, literature will give you insight into human emotions and, and human pain and suffering and so forth. And I totally agree with that. The concern I would have is that economics can help you to understand what cause and effect are. And economics can help you to understand how to think carefully about those trade-offs and those calculations where a little bit of suffering and a huge amount of benefit and how to think about what you are actually giving up when you get stuff. And so I, I think a good knowledge of economics and understanding things like prisoner's dilemma can help you become a much better utilitarian. So let's start with literature. I'm not very well read on the fiction side of things, but I am surrounded by people who are, who often point out to me that whatever I'm currently studying from a psychological perspective was said by some famous person in the fiction world a couple centuries ago. And so that happens to me regularly. So I don't have any opinion about Nussbaum's argument about the benefit of literature, nor do I think I know any empirical evidence on that topic. But I'm open on that. So the fact that I don't have evidence doesn't mean I'm against it. And the fact that I choose not to spend my limited number of hours on the planet reading literature isn't a mark against it. I think there's little doubt that thinking more systematically is good for your brain and it's good for the quality of your decisions and it's good for making more ethical decisions as well. So you focused on economics. I think that there's lots of ways to develop your analytic thinking. So I think that machine learning is a fine tool to making more deliberative decisions based on lots and lots of data. I think talking to a smart friend keeps your emotion in check. Counting to 10 before you hit send is a perfectly good mechanism for being more deliberative. So I think that there's lots of tools out there, and I certainly include economics within that. So you mentioned some interesting contemporary situations around Harvard admissions and around Theranos and examples of corruption. And you mentioned your work in the insurance business. Maybe we could tackle corruption. A lot of people think that corruption is just a result of people having egregious lack of morals. But I think you, you highlight that there's, there's much more to it than that. And that in many cases, it's people who are, they're simply not noticing or they're simply not paying attention. They're simply willfully blind in some cases. Absolutely. So I think that you pick your scandal and the media tends to identify who the villain is. Okay, so Theranos, we have Elizabeth Holmes. 
the Madoff scandal, we have Bernie Madoff. We work ridiculousness. We have Adam Newman, Volkswagen. We have the CEO, I'm blocking on his name. But surrounding these people are dozens, if not hundreds of people who had access to what they were doing that was wrong. And they should have noticed and they should have been able to speak out. And I think that most of us, we're not going to perpetuate the next newspaper-worthy scandal, but we may well be around it and see it. And too often we do too little to stop it. So I view it as my obligation and my moral obligation as a professor to speak up against the policy of legacy admits, of giving favoritism to the children of alums, of donors, of faculty. I think giving special consideration to people who are already part of our fairly small moral tribe means that we end up discriminating against lots of other people who aren't in that circle. And I think that there's far too many professors who are willing to nod their heads and say, yeah, I can see your point, but not really care about the issue, particularly if they have a child who might be applying to the college, to their college in a few years. So I think that we have a pretty enormous capacity to not notice wrongdoing around us. And as a result, we destroy value to a remarkable degree. So I, I think that knowing that in the WeWork story, so Charles uh, Duhigg um, just published a very nice piece where he describes how the VC funds that funded WeWork were an enormous part of this scam where basically Newman was destroying the competition with low prices. He claimed it was through community and technology, which was largely a set of fraudulent claims. But basically, Newman was funding the business by convincing the next group of venture capitalists that he had the greatest thing since sliced bread. And meanwhile, covering up his continuing operating losses with new funds. That has certain Ponzi-like aspects to it. We'll pay the people who want their money back with the new money that we're bringing into the system. But there are lots of people who knew. The venture capitalists knew, the executives around them knew, and nobody spoke up. And it was only when he needed more money and he tried to have an IPO, and the SEC requires you to fill out something called an S-1 that allows people to actually know what's going on in your organization, that the scheme basically fell apart. It shouldn't have taken so long. There were lots of people who could see what was going on. You say they know, but it seems like some, they, they kind of knew and they, they were able to take their knowledge and kind of wall it off in some part of their brain and put a fence around it so they could do their day to day. And I mean, it's like plausible deniability inside one's own head. So I think that the complicity takes a variety of different forms. I think that you have Benchmark Capital, one of the early VC funds, who clearly knew what was going on. And they focused on how do we extract as much of our money out as possible as the new money is coming in. So I think that they were very self-serving. They knew what was going on and they acted to maximize their own profit. At the other end of the spectrum, I think that Newman effectively held himself out as a guru, as a religious figure. And a lot of employees were in his orbit and they had access to the information, but they just didn't want to see the obvious data that was in front of them. And they continued to ignore it with the honest expectation that they were going to get rich with these options that soon evaporated. So complicity takes a wide variety of forms between literally not seeing, seeing and explaining in a way, to just being blinded by the vision 
of the wrongdoer. And I think we can see all of these across most of the stories that we listed earlier. So I, I had a friend who was trying to solicit some money for a charity and she'd given quite a bit of money to this charity. And I did a little research on the charity and discovered that it was more or less a useless charity. I think something like 95% of the proceeds were going directly into the pockets of the management team. And so when I confronted my friend and I said, hey, you know, this is, this is not a legit charity. She said, well, look, it makes me feel like I'm a charitable person, basically. And to sort of summarize the words, like, what's wrong with that? It's the intent that matters. How much of charitable giving is irresponsible charitable giving? I don't want to call it irresponsible. I would say that your friend could do a great job of figuring out how can she get the joy of giving, which it's great that she gets a joy of giving, and at the same time have her dollars create wonderful outcomes. The goal isn't to convince her not to give the money. The goal is to convince her how to be just as charitable, perhaps even more charitable. If she knew she was having an amazing impact, it might be even more fun to give even more. So how do we get people on that path? And the whole world of effective altruism is about exactly that journey. But I never accuse my friends of being ineffective in their giving because they're not being ineffective. They're giving up their own wealth in order to help other people. But I will highlight the fact that if they thought about the goals of their giving, they might want to redirect those dollars in some other ways. And there are lots of good places to go that will give you good advice. Charity Navigator is not a good one because Charity Navigator focuses on one dimension. And that is the question of how to reduce overhead. And I think there's more to charity than reducing overhead. I think we want to think about effectiveness, but I think that givewell.org, one word givewell.org and .org is a terrific resource for helping you identify the most effective uses of your altruism. And you can help restructure your thinking a bit on why are you giving and how can you have more impact. So what I want to do is get your friend to be better informed and allow her to move her money rather than to in any way insult her for the way she's giving money. I, I have heard people who find the effective altruism movement to be arrogant. Like, who are you to tell me how to donate my money. Well, I don't want to tell you how to donate your money. I just want to give you an opportunity to be more thoughtful and then return the decision about how you want to give your money to you. And I think that a lot of us, if we were better informed and more thoughtful and more systematic, we would choose to move our dollars and our time in very different ways. So you talk about religious giving as an example. I mean, I think studies show that religious people are much more generous with their charitable contributions, but that the charitable contributions are targeted at a narrow segment of beneficiaries. And you mentioned that this is both good and bad. It's good that we have this charitable giving, but that by being so restrictive, it, it's doing less good than it could. How would one tackle that? Would you run the risk of getting rid of the charity if you were to be too aggressive in your persuasion attempts? I've tried to convince a religious charity that they should go out of business to make the world better. And that's certainly not my message. But if we focus on the person who's donating primarily through religious organizations, to begin with, they have the right to do that. So I'm not going to tell them that's a mistake. And I'm confident that they're doing far more good than people who choose to not donate their money 
or leave it to their wealthy children instead. So I don't want to criticize them, but I would be delighted if they wanted to think more about why are they giving their money that way? Do they think that they're buying a place in heaven? Well, if they do, I certainly don't have any evidence that they're wrong. That wouldn't be my best guess, but I don't have any evidence that they're not buying their way to heaven. But if they think that they're doing it to be the best person they could be, I would say, well, do you want to stop and think about how the money's being used and what impact it's having? And earlier in the conversation, maybe you said something about belief in equality. Well, if we're going to treat one group, whether it's my family, my school, my religion, as a special category and only they deserve funding, well, it's a little bit hard to maintain equality as a value that you hold at the same time. So I think that we could have people think about the choices that they make. And if they do and they deliberate and they conclude that they want to give their money to charity XYZ, which would be different than my choice, I think they have every right in the world to do that. One of the most exciting areas that you mentioned in the book is this idea of field experiments. And, you know, if you really are interested in making the world a better place, then you really want to know what works. And we're seeing a big surge in experiments around welfare. Are there any interesting examples that have helped you to think more carefully about your charitable giving? Oh, sure. So I I think the whole world of developmental economics has moved heavily toward use of where do dollars do the most good? So you know, some people don't want to send their money to the poorest in the world, which may well be Africa, because they can't imagine whether their dollars are actually going to a good cause or not. Well, development economics and givewell.org provide a pathway to providing pretty good answers because the developmental economists have done the experiments to say what kind of intervention saved the most lives. And GiveWell tells you which organizations are going to get their money into the right causes on a kind of efficient basis. So does that affect my decisions? The answer is absolutely. I use that kind of logic to a significant degree. But I also think that the whole notion of field experiments is a great way to address how we can do more good in the world. So Katie Milkman and Angela Duckworth at Penn have this a wonderful project called Behavior Change for Good, where they focus on running massive numbers of field experiments, often simultaneously, to solve problems of how to get you to go to the gym, how to get people to get a flu vaccination, etc. And running multiple experiments to drive good behaviors is undoubtedly a source for good in the world. So yes, I'm a big fan of experiments broadly. I'm more of a laboratory experimentalist, but I'm a big fan of experiments both in the lab and in the field. So we've just been going through this pandemic for the last year or so, and it seems like there's been a political pandemic happening around the same time. In your observations of these two phenomenon happening simultaneously, it seems like utilitarian-like conversations have been squeezed to the margins, and so many other discourses have risen to the center. Are you concerned about the, the future of the utilitarian project, given the quality of the dialogue that we have? No, I think we're moving in a variety of utilitarian ways. Utilitarians believe in greater equality. I think the social protests of 2020 are moving us in a very positive direction. So I think that that's for the good and it's making the world a better place. I think that having a president who sees science as a useful tool 
for making important decisions, COVID or otherwise, is a move in a strongly utilitarian way. I think that Donald Trump destroyed enormous value, not just for America, but for the world, through his intuitive, impulsive, selfish, narcissistic decision-making. So I think what we see in 2020 and into 2021 as absolutely pivotal to creating greater value in the world. And I think that there are more people who are concerned about justice and value for all as a result of the social changes that are taking place. But I also think that COVID in particular has produced a variety of interesting dialogues about how to create the most good. So I did an experiment last spring when COVID first hit with a number of colleagues led by Karen Wang. And what we looked at is who should get the last ventilator in the hospital when, so assume that a 65-year-old, and by the way, I'm 65, so I might be biased here, a 65-year-old and a 25-year-old show up in the hospital. And the 65-year-old shows up a few minutes earlier, so should get the last ventilator on a first-come, first-served basis. But if we assume that the individual who gets the ventilator lives and the one who doesn't dies, we can create more good if we give the ventilator to the 25-year-old who has more years of life to save. So there's simply more value in that. And when we ask people who should get the ventilator, what we find is that young people want to give it to the young guy. Old people want to give it to the old person. But when we use what John Rawls called a veil of ignorance, and we have people imagine that they could have a 50-50 chance of being either of those two people, what would they want the decision to be based on? Now, all of a sudden, they're quick to see that they'd rather focus on giving more value to the younger person. And their sense of justice also changes, and they start to see it's more moral to allocate the resources where they can do the most good. So I want to end with one last question, which is, you've been at a university, many universities over your life, and we have these elite universities here in in the U.S., well, around the world, and they have a very limited student body, and the knowledge and the network and the experiences are relatively scarce. Do you think that universities are doing enough to share the value that they're creating? It seems to me that we could potentially take the value that we're creating and spread it more widely, but we're concerned about losing that kind of elite exclusivity that we have within our universities. I mean, obviously, we can't admit a million people into Harvard, but is there a way that the value that that Harvard provides could be made more democratically available? Yes. Simply, I think that excellent universities are doing a lot of great things. And I think it's a shame that over the last 40 years, public universities don't get the resources that they used to receive. And that puts public universities on an equal playing field in a variety of ways. But we have lots of public universities, including yours, that are doing amazing things, despite perhaps more limited resources from the state government. So I do think that there's many things that elite universities, whether they're public like Berkeley or private, like my own university, Harvard, are doing to diffuse more information. I don't think any of the professors want to harness the information and only communicate to people within their own university. We want to get the message out. So I'm talking to you in this interview because I'm doing as many digital events as I can to reach tens of thousands of people about my ideas and better not perfect. I think that that's 
part of how we diffuse in the, in the new environment. But many universities are also making their educational products available digitally on a much broader basis at a much lower price point than their tuition would look like. Harvard is also very good at making college free for the poorest people who are admitted to the university. And I think that that's great. Could they do better? Could they admit more people who have faced a variety of challenges that may be hard for them to get to the point of even being competitive for a position at Harvard? Sure. But my reaction is, what do I want? I want Harvard and I want Berkeley and I want every university to be better at helping solve the problems of the world this year than they were last year, and then the following year, perhaps even better. But they're not going to get to be perfect. But I think we can become better, even if we don't think we can become perfect. Max, thanks for talking today. This book has a lot of really great insights about really living a life of maximum sustainable goodness. Not perfection, obviously, but maximum sustainable goodness and lots of tips about time audits and money audits and how to become a better charitable giver and how to be a first-class noticer. Lots of other interesting insights. Definitely check it out. Thanks, Max. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for inviting me to talk today. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.